Open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. Our sermon text today will be Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Let's go to God's word together. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them, there over the face of all the earth. And they left off building the city. Therefore, the name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So this is the reading of God's most holy word. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word today. We thank you that you've made known your mighty acts in redemptive history. And we pray that as we, as we go through your word today, Lord, we would be more and more inclined to look to what Christ has done and to look less and less on what we do, to focus on the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ, not to focus on the redemption that we think we can earn, that we think we can merit through our own works, through our own programs, through our own devices, Father, may we turn more and more today through this word to you, that we would not look to ourselves, that we would look to our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, now today we come to our our fourth sermon, walking through the book of Genesis, focusing on the covenants that God had made throughout redemptive history. And in today's passage, um, found in chapter 11, we're not going to be talking about any additional covenants just yet but hold on because that will happen in Genesis chapter 12 and a little more vividly there in Genesis chapter 15 but what we have before us today in chapter 11 is a clear picture of the outworking of God's covenant of redemption made with Adam and Eve and his covenant of common grace made with Noah and his offspring And it's essential today, it's important that we take note of this, that this passage is not just given to us to satisfy our curiosity about languages. No, loved ones, this is redemptive history. That's what we have before us. And it's here to teach us something about the nature of God and the nature of man. Noting that very first line in Calvin's Institutes, the first line in the first chapter, Calvin opens with this. Our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. 
This story of the building of Tower of Babel is here to teach us something about ourselves, about our fallen nature, our rebellion, our propensity to wander from the creator who has called us into being. It's also a story that teaches us about who God is. It shows us his mighty attributes. And we see that because of his common grace, God does not leave mankind to be a victim of his own wickedness. It's important to also remember here today that Noah and his offspring were all descendants from Adam and Eve, from Adam and Eve's third son, Seth. And from Seth came a people who called upon the name of the Lord. And if you recall in the first sermon on this series on Genesis, we saw that Adam and Eve, our first parents in the garden, were in covenant with God. Being created as God's image bearers, Adam by necessity was obligated to God. And as God's image bearer, he was to imitate God and to reflect his glory. Thus God had instituted a covenant between Adam and himself. Not only was Adam to imitate God and reflect his glory, he was also obligated to keep the garden and to righteously exercise his dominion by guarding God's creation. We also see that in chapter 2, God gives to Adam what may be referred to as a covenant test, forbidding him from eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil. And Adam's reward for keeping God's covenant was eternal life. Access to that tree of life that appeared in the garden in Genesis chapter 1, and that we see reappears again in Revelations 22. Then the angel of the Lord showed me a river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the streets of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations." But if Adam failed to keep God's covenant, his penalty would be quite severe. He would be under the penalty of death. And not only for himself, but for all his progeny, for us, for each and every one of us today. This covenant found out of the first two chapters of the Bible is known in Reformed theology as a covenant of works. It's a type of covenant that's known as bilateral. That means there were obligations placed on both parties. If Adam was to obey and fulfill his obligations, then God would grant him his eternal reward. However, if Adam failed, there would be a steep penalty, the penalty of death. And in Genesis chapter 3, we see that our first parents break God's covenant. As a result of Satan's temptation, Adam and Eve took and ate the fruit from the tree of knowledge and good and evil. Being so easily tempted by Satan, with the idea that they could be like God, so easily manipulated, being brought to doubt the word of God. Thinking that they could set out on their own without God and have things all their own way. Why would they need God if they could be like him? And as a result of breaking their covenant with God, as a result of their disobedience, they brought about the curse of sin and death, not only for themselves, but for all their offspring. And at that moment, God would have been perfectly just if he had eliminated humanity once and all, condemning us all to the fires of hell. Adam and his offspring were no longer any good. With their marred image, they could no longer reflect the glory of God, the very purpose for which they were made. But God had mercy 
And he institutes a new covenant in Genesis 3.15, a covenant of grace, announcing that in due time he would bring forth out of the seed of the woman one who would crush the head of the serpent, a champion, a second Adam, who would succeed where the first Adam failed and reverse the curse of sin and death. However, God's covenant of grace, if we pay very close attention, we'll notice that it's not like that first covenant. It's not a bilateral covenant of works. This time there were no conditions given to Adam to meet. God took it upon himself to unilaterally unilaterally accomplish our promised redemption by himself. There was nothing left for us to do. And in Genesis chapter 4, we see Eve eagerly awaiting her promised offspring who would fulfill God's promise, becoming hopeful that the promise would be fulfilled in her first son, Cain, only to have that hope crushed when her first son, Cain, murders his brother Abel. And from the offspring of our first parents, we see two distinct lines emerge, a line of the seed of the serpent from Cain and a line of the seed of the woman from his brother Seth. And in the generations from Seth to Noah, we see the results of mankind's wickedness. Mankind's wickedness when it is unrestrained by God's common grace. In the absence of God's common grace, it becomes evident how deeply and how fallen we are in Adam. By the time we get to Genesis chapter 6, we learn, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, and all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end to all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. We know what happened. All of mankind, save save Noah and his family, were destroyed by the flood. Noah and his family were seen safely through the flood, and the waters receded. And upon that, and about exiting the ark, God bestows upon them his blessing. And he commands them to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. God entered into the covenant of common grace with Noah and his offspring, promising that he would never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither Will I ever, ever again strike down every living creature as I have done? While the earth remains, seed time, harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. God bestowed upon all the living his common grace that will restrain the, the, that will restrain the wickedness of man. However, I want you to notice something, that in doing so, he still acknowledges the intentions of, man heart, of man's heart. Intentions of man's heart due to the fall were evil from his youth. The sin was still there. The results of the flood had not been washed away. The, the results of the fall had not been rushed, washed away by the flood. The seed of the woman had not yet come. The serpent's head had not been yet crushed. In today's passage, we see again the effects of sin. In Genesis chapter 7, we see for the first time during the flood that God sends a great judgment that falls on humanity. And now again, we see in chapter 11 that he does this for a second time. Although it would have been perfectly just again for him to strike down all of mankind, just as he did in the flood, this time he refrains. He remembers his covenant with Noah. And while he does exercise his judgment, we also see him exercise his mercy upon his image bearers. 
In verse 1 of today's passage, Moses informs us that the fallen world after the flood was quite unified. They all spoke the same language. That would have been the language that Noah spoke. They all had moved from the east and had formed and had found a common place to settle, the plain of Shinar. And they all were able to come together and they were to commit to this common project. Now, some of us might be a bit confused here because the chapter right before today's passage, Genesis chapter 10, details for us the nations that had descended from the sons of Noah. And it ends by proclaiming, proclaiming starting in verse 32, these are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nation. And from these, the nation spread abroad on the, fa- on the face of the earth after the flood. You see, pay attention to what uh, Moses is doing here, and we see this a lot in Genesis. What he's doing here in chapter 11, he's given us a flashback of events that had taken, taken place before chapter 11. I'm sorry, he's using chapter 11 to give us a flashback of events that took place before chapter 10. But we get a bent, we get a bit, of a hint and a backstory in chapter 10, starting in verse 8, when we learn that it was Noah's great-grandson, Nimrod, who had established his kingdom on the plain of Shinar with, uh, of Shinar with Babel, which is just another way of saying Babylon, being one of its first cities. And what we see here in the first few verses of chapter 11 is a, is a society thriving under God's common grace. God was interested in the hold of mankind. He allowed the wicked as well as the righteous to prosper. Luke, writing in Acts chapter 14, in past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Anybody yesterday take some time to sit outside as the spring settle in and have their hearts satisfied by the change of the seasons? Remember God's common grace. These things are given to us so we remember that covenant, that God will sustain us, that God has poured his grace out upon us. And these blessings are to serve as a witness to God's goodness. The people of Babel should should have been moved to glorify God. However, the blessing of a common language, it only served to increase their arrogance. And they saw language not only allowed them to be able to talk about things, but now this language allowed them to be able to do things. And we see that under God's common grace, the people were able to implement new technologies. Verse 3, they had brick for stone. The brick was strong like stone, but it was easier to shape and mold than stone. And instead of traditional mortar, they had bitumen, which was oil-based. It was like tar, and it would have been a far superior adhesive, and it would have been waterproof, unlike mortar. Mankind had now found itself in a position to shape nature rather than to be shaped by nature. Verse 4, And they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth writing during the Scottish Reformation in 1952. Sir David Lindsay published a poem titled, A Dialogue. It's an a dialogue, it's in Old English. Lindsay, who was an 
uh, was a strong supporter of the famous Scottish reformer John Knox and was also one of the first readers of William Tyndale's Tyndale's English translation of the Bible when it arrived in Scotland. And his work dealt with the impossibility, impossibility of peace His work dealt with the impossibility of peace and contentment due to the sinfulness of man. In the story, an, old, an older, wiser man in the poem named Experience illustrates this point by using the details found in the biblical narratives. In the third book of the poem, Lindsay gives us a fictional description of the building of the Tower of Babel. Ultimately, he describes it this way, that when the sun is at its height, At noon, when it does shine most bright, the shadow of that hideous strength, six miles and more, it is of length. Centuries later, Oxford scholar in 1945, C.S. Lewis, published his third book of his space trilogy. And what Lewis does is he borrows Lindsay's description of the Tower of Babel and uses it as the title of his book, That Hideous Strength. Lewis's work details the plot of an evil organization named NICE, the National Institute of Coordinated Experience, with the goal to free man from nature and to spread totalitarianism across the globe. Being a admirer of Lewis, I always thought that was a really great title, that hideous strength. A great title for a work challenging Marxist ideology and collectivist thinking. But one might be inclined to wonder what led Lewis to use a 16th century description of the Tower of Babel. Moreover, what caused Lindsay to use those words? What was so hideous about that strength and ambition of those who settled on the plain of Shinar? For someone reading today's passage for the first time, they may be tempted to think, well, what's so bad about a people gathering together to build a great city with a tower that reached into the heavens? What's so wrong with them wanting to make a name for themselves? I mean, they were just working together towards a common goal. Shouldn't we encourage that? Why would such a thing bring about the judgment of God? Well, it's important that we must first note that this is an effort, that this note, that the effort of the people to settle in one place and avoid being dispersed is a direct violation of God's cultural mandate given in Genesis 1, verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over all the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We see this mandate reiterated after the flood to Noah and his family. Genesis 9, chapter 7, verse 7. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Next, we see that the degree to build a city with its tower in the heavens. Next, we see a, a, a decree to build a city with its tower in the heavens. Now, many Old, uh, Old Testament scholars point out that at that time, such a tall structure would have been built in the form of what's called a ziggurat. This is a type of building was less like what we may think of as a tower today and more like a pyramid we might expect to find in South America. The bottom started out um, as an extremely large square 
and each additional level consisted of a slightly smaller square on top of the other as the structure rose higher and higher into the air. And it appeared, once it was complete, as if it were a staircase, a staircase to heaven, or perhaps a staircase from heaven. And we see in verse 4 that the goal of this structure, was, was, of this structure was to allow the people in the plain of Shinar to make a name for themselves. Now, how exactly would that take place? The easy assumption that most of us tend to make is that they expected that they would be able to use the tower to somehow ascend to heaven, to ascend to the dwelling place of God. But the text never tells us that. There's nothing in here about the people wanting to use the tower to ascend anywhere. So how can such a great name be earned, we must ask. Recently departed Anglican pastor and theologian Melvin Tinker gives us an informed and observant answer, writing, the answer lies, the answer lies, in, what ha- the answer lies in what is hoped the tower will achieve. Contrary to the common view that the ziggurat was a means by which humans might ascend to the heights of heaven, it was seen as a holy place which would bring God down from the heaven. The assumption is that with the right technique and the right expertise, mankind could domesticate God, enticing him down to dwell among them and also bless them. In the pagan mind, it was based on the belief that the gods had needs which humans could meet. And as such, the Bible account represents a distortion of the nature of God, corrupting his image by reshaping him and their image. Having the power to bring down God in more senses than one is bound to result in a great name. For you can appear to be greater than God himself. You see, this whole endeavor on the plain of Shinar was nothing less than cosmic rebellion. Man wanting to be like God, believing that lie of Satan. You see, ever since the fall of man, We have wanted to rule ourselves. We hate the fact that we are not made for our own good pleasure, but for God's good pleasure. And in being created to worship him, when we turn away from God, we have to, we will worship something. And what we usually end up worshiping is a God that we create, which mostly just becomes a bigger version of ourselves. So we ignore the common grace that was meant to glorify God and we seek to glorify ourselves. That's who we are. That's who we are in our fallen state. Therefore, I'm sorry, from the canons of Dart, um, the continental reformers summed this up so, so excellently in the, um, in the third and fourth main points of doctrine in Article 3. Therefore, all people are conceived in sin and are, are, and are born children of wrath, unfit for any saving good, inclined to evil, dead in their sins, and slaves to sin. Without the grace and regeneration of the Holy Spirit, they are neither willing nor able to return to God, to reform their distorted nature, or even dispose themselves to such reform. What can we do then? What can we do? You see, we can't help it. That is our default setting. And in our pride, we create a narrative that we can save ourselves. 
That we can perform our works in such a way that God will be required to accept us. Are we any different today from the inhabitants of the of the, um, the, the inhabitants of Babel? Do we forget God's covenant of grace and run back to the garden, run back to the covenant of works? It becomes not about what God has done, but what we can do, what programs we can implement, what buildings we can build to attract a crowd, what music will bring them in. We forget the words of the Apostle Paul Writing in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 24. But now the righteousness of God is manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness, righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Going back to our passage Verse 5, as Johnny Cash would say, then the man comes around. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. It's important right now that we be a bit careful. Some might see the language used here in chapter 5 as being in conflict with divine omniscience, that doctrine that God is all-knowing at all times. It's not like God is wandering around heaven and then he saw something through the clouds and he just decided to go down and, hey, let me see what those people on the planet of Shinar are doing down there. That's not what's happening. What, what the Bible is doing here, what Moses is using, is he's using anthropomorphic language. He's using it in a way... Um, Meaning that Moses is human, meaning that Moses is using human expression to communicate something divine, something that we, in our fallenness, may not be able to fully understand. Upon commenting on the treachery before him, God recognizes the people are using their common language as a tool for treachery, noting that if this were to continue, it would only be the beginning of what they would do. The end of verse 6, nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Again, it must be pointed out here that God is not afraid of what humans would do against him, as if they could somehow rob him of his glory. No, God is concerned here what we would do to ourselves. He recognizes our need for common grace. Otherwise, we would destroy ourselves. So in verse 7, he says, come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that, we may not, so that they may not understand one another's speech. Wait a second, did you hear that? Come, let us go down. Who is he talking to? So one of my coworkers say when, when someone asks her and they say, hey, so-and-so, let, let us go do such and such. She always looks at him and says, us? What are you, you have a rat in your pocket? <laughs> Who's he talking to? Could this be, as the Reformation Study Bible puts it, an indication of the plurality within the divine unity? Hinting at the later New Testament revelation that the one God, of the one God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Some disagree, but it was certainly the view of St. Augustine. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth. 
and they left off building the city. It looks like the construction of such a tower was a little difficult when they couldn't understand one another. Therefore, its name was called Babel because the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. We see here in one mighty act of God. We have both a God who is righteous in his judgment, Exodus 34, 7, who will by no means clear the guilty, and a God who gives mercy to all, Psalm 145. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. The judgment of God came on the people of Babel, causing not only their language to be divided, but also causing them to be scattered over the face of the earth. No longer would they be able to use their collected strength and prideful attempts to make God in their own image. Their ambitious project was left in ruins. They now found their efforts were a waste. And as a result of being dispersed and separated into nations, they, they, they would now be forced to compete in war with one another for limited resources and power. Their sin certainly had its consequence. The consequence is still, still with us today. However, in the Lord and his mercy, because of his promise of common grace to all living things, prevented the people from destroying themselves from their own sinfulness. You see, loved ones, those cities and those towers of men, We're never meant to stand forever. The kingdoms that we build will always fall to ruin. Only God can build a kingdom that will last forever. And he built his kingdom. Not through pride and power, not through strength and might. No. He built his kingdom by coming down to us in humiliation. Although he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God to be a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. It was Jesus Christ who would build a city that would last forever. He was the one of whom John the Baptist spoke, proclaiming in the wilderness, the one who would baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Matthew chapter 3. He is the one of whom Malachi proclaimed, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and a messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming says the Lord of hosts, fulfilled in Luke chapter 24. He was the one of whom Zechariah prophesied in Zechariah 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humbled and mounted on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. He is the one of whom Moses wrote in Numbers 20, uh, Numbers. Chapter 24, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A a star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and it shall crush the forehead of Moab, and it shall break down the sons of Sheath. Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman, the second Adam who would overcome the seed of the serpent. 
who would reverse the curse of sin and death, who would fulfill that covenant of works in our place by keeping every letter of God's holy law. Jesus Christ, who would pay the due penalty on the cross at Calvary for the sins of all who would believe in him, who has overcome the grave and now sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, building his kingdom, building a kingdom that will last forever. And every day, every day, loved ones, all around us, we can see that kingdom starting to reveal itself as the gospel is being proclaimed. As sinners repent and run to the cross of Christ. As infants and new church members are baptized into the covenant. The curse is being reversed. Yes, our languages are still confused. But we see the consequence of that judgment starting to fade away. We see in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost as Peter was about to proclaim the gospel of Christ. These words. And suddenly they came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The curse is being undone. You see, confused languages would no longer hinder the proclamation of God's truth. What was, what was once confused was now understood. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that we would find in it today that we would find a means of strength to keep your gospel in the forefront of our mind. That we would continue to look to Christ more and more and that we would look at ourselves less and less that we would look to your word to how, to how to glorify you, Lord, to how to appropriately worship you, how to be your church, that we would rest in your sovereignty, knowing that you will work all things for our good. We thank you, Lord, for your holy goodness today and for your blessings upon us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.